So who was not here when we did our study on pre- Okay. Well, unfortunately for you, we won't be recovering that material because we have a whole lot of material to get through. But basically, last time we got together, what I wanted to do was to look at Irenic theology. Irenic theology is a little bit different than uh, your standard theology. Normally, when somebody stands up here or somebody's in the pulpit, they tell you this is how it is. Have you noticed that? They say, this is what the Bible says, and you should believe it, which is nothing wrong with that. But sometimes, Irenic theology is saying, well, this is what certain people say, and this is what other people say. And they present it fairly, with full strength. And one of the advantages of Irenic theology, there's a time and place for everything. One of the advantages for Irenic theology is it often humbles a person. Because it's very easy to say, we're right, they're wrong, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. When you don't actually know their arguments. Or when their arguments are presented in a straw man form. But if you actually feel the full weight of their argument, it usually humbles you. And you usually say, well, yeah, I can understand uh, where they're coming from. And you have a, a much more charitable perspective. So that's what we did. Uh, I used the topic of eschatology to open up that series of Irenic theology. And so last time we looked at premillennialism. Anybody remember that? Premillennialism. And I said, look, this is the strongest case the Bible has for presenting premillennialism. And I distinguished it from dispensational premillennialism. Premillennialism was simply the belief that when Christ comes back, he will establish an intermediate kingdom in between this millennial kingdom and the eternal state. And I showed you various passages that could be understood from that perspective. And I gave you the strongest case. And some of you might remember that, and some of you might have left there thinking, how could anybody possibly not be a premillennialist? All these people believe in premillennialism, and there's so much good text about it, how could you possibly deny it? Now, I won't ask for any volunteers, but I'm, felt, I'm sure some of you felt delighted if you were premillennial, and some of you probably didn't feel so good if you were all millennial. Well, today we're going to look on the flip side of that, and we're going to look at the all-millennial case. Now, I'm going to apologize up front here. There is no way that I'm going to be able to get through all of the all-millennial case. It's just not going to happen. However, I'm going to get through as much as I can to kind of give you a foretaste and some things that you can think about, and you can have all of my notes, and you can always talk to me. I usually say after service, and I'm willing to talk to any of you about anything. Okay, so let's look at the all-millennial case. Now, let's define all-millennial. As I said last time, it is an awful term because all, like, all, like atheism, the A there negates, so it means literally no millennium. But that's not, of course, the case. The fact is, in the book of Revelation, there is a millennial kingdom. Six times in the book of Revelation, it talks about this thousand years where Satan will be uh, shut up in Hades, where the wicked dead will be shut up in Hades, where the righteous will reign with Christ, and where Christ will be reigning in heaven. So there's no question that there's a millennium. The question is, what does that millennium refer to? All millennialism is negating the idea of an intermediate state. It negates premillennialism, historic premillennialism. What it means, what the, the theology of all millennialism, all millennialism says is that we are currently in the millennium. In other words, the millennium describes Christ's current reign on earth right now. If I were to ask my children, they're not here, but if I were to ask one of my sons and say, where is Christ? He would say, well, he's not here. I'm going to ask you, where is Christ? Sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, right? Isn't that the right answer? Where is Christ? He's not wandering around in the woods. He's not at Chick-fil-A. It's not even open today. But he's at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing up there? Is he just watching TV? Is he just hanging out? What is he doing at the right hand of the Father? Reigning. Bingo. So the reign of Christ is viewed as Christ right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, subjecting all of his enemies under his feet. That would be understood as the reign of Christ. Now, by the way, that's true whether you're an all-millennial, pre-millennial, post-millennial, anything else, right? Hopefully we recognize Christ right now is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And we also recognize he's coming to reign. Everybody see that? There's an already not yet eschatology. He currently is reigning. Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. You can see that in Revelation chapter 1. He is king of the kings, lord of the lords. His lordship transcends all. Does anybody remember the beginning of the Great Commission? What does Jesus say? Not go therefore and make disciples, right? Go therefore. Well, what's the therefore? Anybody remember? Jesus had just rose from the dead. What did he say? 
All authority, anybody remember this? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Christ currently is King of kings, Lord of lords. He reigns from the right hand of the Father. But he is also coming to reign. So the question is, is that millennial reign referring to that future reign or that current reign? So without further ado, because we have so many texts to go through, we're going to look at passages that understood in a certain way can point to the all-millennial case. So flip over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at a few texts that would point to the all-millennial reign. And so the first argument, and we're going to look at the text to prove it, but here's the first argument. If you study the New Testament, when Christ comes back, there's certain things that are supposed to happen, and these certain things preclude the premillennial interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. One of those things that are supposed to happen is the final judgment. So let's make this clear. When Christ comes back, according to many texts in the New Testament, when Christ comes back, then there is the final judgment. Now, I'm kind of hoping and assuming that you guys have Revelation 20 just memorized. But if you don't, and we don't have time to read it, we'll probably get there later. Let me just give you a summary. Revelation chapter 19 has Christ coming back. Almost nobody disagrees with that. Few, there's always a few people, but almost no one disagrees that Revelation 19 refers to the second coming of Christ, which we saw last time. Then you have Satan being bound for a thousand years, the saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years. After that, you have a brief rebellion happening. Then you have the great white throne judgment. And then chapter 21, you have the eternal state. Does that sound familiar? If anybody doesn't believe me, just turn to Revelation 20 and just read the headings, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, so when is the final judgment? In the book of Revelation chapter 20. It is after the thousand years. Everybody see that? The final judgment's after the thousand years. Then you have the eternal state in chapter 21 after the final judgment. Now, here's the all-millennialist case. They say, well, wait a second. Where does the rest of the Bible teach that the final judgment is supposed to happen? Is it supposed to happen a thousand years after the coming of Christ? Or does it happen at the coming of Christ? Now, the all-millennial case says it comes at the coming of Christ. And so I can show you places in the Bible that have the final judgment after the coming of Christ that suggests that the thousand years is right now, and that's why when the thousand years are up and the final judgment happens, that corresponds with the second coming. hope I didn't confuse anybody there. Does that make sense? Is that the second coming is the final judgment, and in the end of the millennial is the final judgment, therefore we can conclude that the millennial must be happening right now. hope I didn't confuse anybody. All right, so let's look at this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 to 30. Can somebody read that voice, loud voice? Go back. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you must uh, root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Perfect. All right, so before I exegete this, why don't we just let Jesus exegete this? So can you skip down to verse 36 and read Jesus' interpretation from 36 to 43? Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, this is the words of our Lord Jesus, and it seems rather simple, okay? He even goes so far to explain the entire parable. So we can go down piece by piece and figure, figure out what this is. So again, to summarize the parable, there's a person who owns a field. Then he sends out people, he throws out good seed into the field. 
when he's sleeping, an evil person comes and throws bad seed. Okay, when the when those seeds start growing, the people who work for the, the owner of the field says, "Look, Lord, there's weeds up. There's weeds over there. Should we rip the weeds out?" And he says, "No, don't rip the weeds out right now, lest you get some of the good grain. Let them all grow, and at harvest time, we'll separate the two. You'll take the grain and you'll put them into my barn, and you'll take the weeds and you'll burn them." Right? Does that sound like a fair summary of what we read? All right, so Jesus then explains what these things mean. What is the field? This is important. What is the field? The field is the earth. You see that? The field is not the church. It is true that there are weeds in the church, but that's not what he's talking about. The field is the earth, which is described as, as uh, the kingdom. The one who's sowing the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The one sowing the weeds is the devil. Now, in verse 39, it specifically says the harvest is the end of the age. Everybody see that? The harvest is the end of the age. Now, I don't want to get caught up in this, but the Bible teaches two ages. There's this age and the age to come. This age is the age that we're in, the evil age, the age full of death, pain, suffering, bad people. In this text, bad people. You see that? In this text, the, the, this age is currently where there's the good and the righteous and they're on the earth. The harvest is the end of that age, when that age is cut to an end. Now, when is that? Well, it's when the reapers are the angels. And then verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned into the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So when are the wicked people going to be gathered up and thrown into the fire? At the end of the age. Okay. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Now, what is the fiery furnace? What do we call that? Somebody said hell? Yeah, it's hell, right? If you're in the fiery furnace, it is hell, which happens at the end of the age. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, notice this, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So I hope you see this. At the end of the age, two things are going to happen. They're all going to happen with the reapers. Who are the reapers? Angels. Okay? The reapers are the angels. So at the end of the age, the Son of Man is going to come. He's going to send out the angels. The angels are going to do two things. What are the two things the angels are going to do? Grab the weeds in the fire. Boom. What else is the other thing he's going to do? The good seed in the barn. Okay? Now, does angels being sent out by God, gathering the righteous to God, sound familiar to anybody? Any Bible theologians here? At the end of the age, when Christ comes back, sending out angels, gathering the righteous. Does that sound familiar? What do we call that, Mark? The rapture. The rapture 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15. You see that? So this is clearly talking about things that will happen at the second coming. We have the rapture of the righteous. But we don't just have the rapture of the righteous. We have the destruction of the wicked. And it describes them as being thrown out of the kingdom. Now, hopefully you might see a problem here. If the wicked are going to be thrown out of the kingdom, last I checked, there's only two categories, right? There's the righteous and the wicked. You see that? There's only two seeds in there. There's not a third seed. There's not good seed, bad seed, and neutral seed. There's no such thing as neutrality. Jesus said, you are with me or you're against me. So if all of the righteous are gathered to the barn and all of the wicked are cast into the fire, who's left? Nobody. And again, the main point is this. When does the final judgment, when do people end up in hell? Is it at the second coming or a thousand years later? Is that the second coming? All right, so let's look at another passage. Can somebody read same chapter, verse 47 through 50? Nathan, can you read that? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, Jesus said it twice in the same context. You remember when Joseph had the dream? Well, Joseph's um, Pharaoh had the dream. He had the same dream twice, slightly different, same dream. He said this was to show that these things will really happen. It's emphasis. It's the same idea. At the end of the age, what marks the end of the age? The coming of Christ. When does the end of the age happen? When the righteous are gathered. When are the righteous gathered? First Thessalonians chapter 4, at the second coming of Christ. So at the second coming of Christ marks the end of the age. The end of the age divides the righteous and the wicked. 
The righteous are like good fish that you take in and say yummy and eat sushi. Right? The wicked are like bad fish that you say yuck and throw it in the trash can. But again, there's no fish that remain. There's no fish that stay. And this fish being thrown out does not happen a thousand years later. It happens at the exact same time that the sushi is being cut up and eaten. All right, so let's go to a, another passage, Matthew chapter 25. Yeah? Um, I, just, I don't want to steal your thunder, and I don't know if you're going there or not, but one, one comment on uh, Matthew 13, 43. Um, it uh, seems like the words of Jesus there are an allusion to Daniel 12. Uh, Jesus says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Daniel 12, 3. This is after the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the, the judgment. Daniel 12, 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse in the heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Yeah, we'll get to Daniel chapter 12. Um, what, I, what I'll say about this is if anybody denies that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father does not refer to glorification, I just don't know what to say. It clearly refers to glorification, right? Um, and... and and at least when it comes to premillennialism, that really wouldn't be denied because we all recognize, according to First Thessalonians, that we will be glorified. But we will certainly look at this idea of what is the kingdom of their father. Does the kingdom of their father refer to intermediate kingdom, or does the kingdom of their father refer to the eternal kingdom? And by the way, that should be a clue, the kingdom of their father. If you're thinking about 1 Corinthians 15, you might be tipped off to something. Just, just think about that. We'll come back to that. But the kingdom of their father. Okay, so thank you, Pastor. All right, Matthew chapter 25. I love Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is so wonderful. If your theology is broken by Matthew 25, there's something wrong with your theology. Okay? Um, Matthew 25 is an amazing passage because it refers to the final judgment. And what it's going to do is it's going to point to works. And I'm going to preach a tiny little mini-sermon on this real quick. The reason why Matthew 25, the goats and the sheep, are distinguished based on their works is because your faith without works is dead. Your theology should be able to handle this very easily. That your works prove what is in your heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. If you say, I love you to a woman, and you beat her consistently all the time, every sane human being would say he doesn't love you. Get rid of him, right? Because your actions prove what's in your heart. So Jesus points to their works as a proof of their faith, and he judged them accordingly. So there's no problem with this text. But let's go... Uh, to Matthew chapter 25, and can someone read verse 1? Stan, do you have that? Excuse me, Matthew 25, verse 31. Maybe I got this wrong. Yes, verse 31. Yes. 31? Yes, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Okay, so do we recognize a few things? Number one, the Son of Man's coming. We should all recognize that as the second coming. The Son of Man, of course, is Christ. It says, with his angels. Did we see that in Matthew chapter 13, that Jesus Christ comes with his angels? First Thessalonians 4 when Christ comes back and the shout of the voice of the archangel. This is a constant theme. Jesus is coming back with his angels. So the context here is the second coming of Christ. Can you read verse 32, Stan? All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Okay. And then verse 33? And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Okay. So notice what's happening here. The king comes... And he's taking sheep and goats. Now, this should go without saying, but human beings are not sheep or goats. It's a metaphor. Okay? This is a parable. This is a picture. It's supposed to be communicating a message. So while it is not literal, it still communicates our real reality. Namely, when Christ comes back, he's going to make a, distingu- he's going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous are likened to sheep, but they're not really sheep. And the wicked are likened to goats, but they're not really goats. Anybody see that? Now notice that this happens at the second coming. It makes no sense to say this happens a thousand years later. He grabs the sheep now, and a thousand years later he grabs the goats. That's awful. Hopefully nobody would come to that kind of exegesis because it's not true. 
Okay, so what happens to the sheep? Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now what kingdom is that? What's the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world? What's the kingdom of God? But let me just ask you this. Does that sound like a millennial kingdom to you? I mean, seriously, like this is the grand hope, the millennial kingdom? Sometimes it stuns me. Even if there is something called a millennial kingdom, is that really the grand hope, a thousand-year kingdom? No, of course not, right? Wouldn't the grand hope be the eternal kingdom, the one that will last forever? So doesn't it sound like the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world would not refer to an intermediate kingdom, but rather refer to an eternal kingdom? Seems reasonable to me. All right, so then he goes on and explains that uh, they... They had Christian charity toward others, and those things were actually done to them, which is wonderful, and I want to preach a sermon on that, but we don't have time. So let's skip down to what he says to the wicked. Somebody read verse 41. Stand you there. Can you read 41? Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, now it gets pretty clear, right? The everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels refer to the lake of fire. We all know that. So notice that at the second coming of Christ, certain people inherit the kingdom of God prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Sounds like the eternal state. And certainly these people receive the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's certainly the prima facie meaning of that is clearly hell, right? If you were trying to prove the doctrine of hell was everlasting, you would go here. I guarantee it. If you were trying to prove that the doctrine of hell is not something that's a temporary fire, you would go to this text because you don't have that many others. And because it so clearly refers to that. Then, if there's any question about that, look down to verse 46. Stan, can you read that? Verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, notice the contrast. Eternal punishment, eternal life. These are eternal realities, not temporary realities. Now, I'm not going to insult anybody's intelligence, but it's a thousand years less or greater than eternity or equal to it. Obviously less, right? The fact that a thousand years ends also shows you that it's not a figure for eternity because a thousand years ends. So eternity does not end. So here they enter into the eternal state, eternal life, and eternal damnation. That's the lake of fire and the eternal state. But remember the premillennialist scheme. It says that one group... Actually, really, both groups don't enter into their everlasting states until the end of the thousand years. Now, to be fair, eternal life can also refer to glorification. So according to the premillennial scheme, you do get eternal life, glorification, at uh, the second coming of Christ. But they're supposed to get these two things at the same time. They're supposed to get eternal life and eternal punishment at the same time. Also, we're going to see elsewhere in 1 Corinthians that the reason you get an eternal body is to, be, is to inherit an eternal kingdom. And also in this text, you see eternal life is prepared is uh, synonymous with the kingdom. So the, the, the text said that the sheep were going to receive the kingdom, and then it summarized that by describing that as eternal life, showing that there's a parallelism. And so, too, the eternal punishment is parallel with the eternal fire. Looks like there's a fox out there. All right. So hopefully you guys all see why Matthew chapter 25 is a major problem for the premillennialist scheme. Let me just summarize it real quick. The, the two passages that we saw uh, that cause a problem with the premillennialism is uh, two passages in Matthew chapter 13 and one passage in Matthew chapter 25, which all seem to teach that at the second coming of Christ is the end of the age and the eternal states begin. Eternal life or being with God in his kingdom and eternal damnation or being with the devil in the everlasting fire. So before we go on, is there any questions about this? Does everybody understand what I'm trying to communicate from those passages and why they seem to support an all-millennialist scheme? Okay. Um, we're going to move on from this for the sake of time, but there's one other text that you might be interested in. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it describes the same idea. When Christ comes back with his mighty angels, there's going to be two things that are going to happen. There's going to be relief for the righteous, and it says that the wicked, I'll just quote the uh, relevant part, it says that the wicked 
Now he's going to come with his angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. So another text that indicates that the final judgment for the wicked is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. So I don't want to belabor this point, but if Christ comes back, and on that day, the wicked will begin to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That obviously runs into problems with claiming that's going to happen a thousand years later. So that's five passages. Two in Matthew chapter 13, uh, one in Matthew 25, and one in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. All of these passages indicate the final judgment of the wicked happens at the second coming of Christ, not a thousand years later. Any questions, comments on that? Anybody feel the tension at least? Anybody see a possible problem? Okay. All right, let's go to a second argument. The second argument is this. At the second coming of Christ, that is supposed to be when the eternal state begins. Kind of similar to the last one. But the other one was saying at the second coming of Christ, that's when there was the final judgment. Now we're going to look at texts that indicate at the second coming of Christ, that is when the eternal state the new heavens and the new earth begin. Hopefully we all recognize that our hope is not floating in the clouds. Our hope is that there's going to be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We are people made of souls and bodies. That's how God designed us originally in the Garden of Eden, right? And so that's who we are. We're supposed to be embodied souls. And so the hope is not the immortality of the soul. The hope is that that immortal soul will receive an immortal body. And live on an immortal earth. That's the hope. That's the goal. So what we're going to see is that the second coming of Christ, the Bible indicates that that is when this earth will be immortalized. That's when this earth will go from temporary to eternal. The kingdom of God will be revealed. So someone turn over to, well, all of you please, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Neil, can you read 18 through 23? 18 to 23? Yes, please. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the ancient longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but for him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the uh, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. All right, going back to verse 18. So, right now, we don't consider the sufferings of this present time worthy to be the, compared to the glory that is to be revealed. So there's a present time suffering, and he's comparing that to a future time glory. Everybody see that? Present suffering in this evil age compared to a future glory in the age to come. Verse 19 says, The creation waits eagerly, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation is personified. Once again, this is not literal. Creation is not literally alive, but it's personified. As if it's longing and it's waiting for something. And what does the text say that creation is waiting for? Look at verse 19. What does it say? The revealing of the sons of God. Now what's that? When will the sons of God be revealed? At the second coming, right? I mean, think about it. When the sons of God will all be manifested as the sons of God is at the second coming. That's when you'll know for sure whether your neighbor was really a Christian, won't you? When you go up and he's still down, pretty clear, right? Also, all of the dead in Christ will rise first. So the entire sons of God will all be revealed in that day in the clouds. There will be no sons of God down here. Isn't that true? That is the day that all the sons of God will be revealed. Now, why is creation, what is the connection between creation longing for that day when the sons of God are revealed? Well, look at verse 20. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what's going on here? Creation was originally good, very good. There were no thorns, there were no thistles, there was no pain, there was no suffering. It was a good creation. 
But then when Adam sinned, he subjected himself and creation to futility. That's why we live in a sin-cursed world. So, creation is longing to receive the same setting free that the children of God are going to reveal, they're going to receive. Now, what is that? Verse 22 tells us, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a connection here. Creation has been subjected to futility. We have been subjected to futility, right? Every single day. Anybody who's aging understands what I'm talking about. There's pain, there's suffering, there's aches, there's falling apart. Why is this happening? Because we've been subject to futility. When did that happen? At the fall. So both our bodies and creation have been all affected by the second law of thermodynamics and cursed. That's what's going on here. And so we inwardly groan and wait for the redemption of our bodies, which is our adoption. We're waiting for that day. That day will happen at the second coming of Christ. But creation is also waiting for that day. Why? Because creation itself will also be redeemed on that day. I hope you see that connection. The reason why creation wants to see the revealing of the sons of God because it knows in its salvation it will receive, on their salvation, it will receive its salvation. Does that make sense? Anybody see that? Creation wants to see the day when all the sons of God are set free because it knows it will be set free. Now, why did I bring this text up when we're talking about all millennialism? Well, once again, when is the new creation supposed to happen? According to this text, when the second coming of Christ happens, when we get our glorified bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4, very clearly, we receive this at the second coming of Christ. But remember what happens to the earth in Revelation chapter 20. I promise we'll get there. But what happens? I just want you to remember this. I want you to be the Bible answer man and know all the Bible by heart. What happens is the fire comes down and consumes the people surrounding the city. The, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire, and then it says, earth and sky fled away, and they were no more. Then the final judgment, then chapter 21, new creation happens. If you, if you question me on that, just flip over to Revelation real quick. Look at verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1. You'll see it. New creation happens after the final judgment. But according to this, new creation happens at the second coming. If the second coming is the beginning of the thousand years, we have a problem. We have a contradiction. I thought new creation was supposed to happen at the second coming of Christ, not a thousand years later. So that is the problem. Everybody see that? Everybody see the problem? Okay. Let's go over to 2 Peter, chapter 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3. Can I have a volunteer to read verse 4 through 7? John, can you read that? Sure. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay. So verse 4 says, where is the promise of his coming? Who's the antecedent of his? What, what's the his coming? What are they questioning? Christ's coming. Everybody see that? They're saying, when is he going to come? When is Christ going to come? Then he says, look, they say everything's always happened just as it always happened. He says, that's not true. Remember the flood. And he says, look, God is actually, according to verse 7, the same word, the same God, is preparing the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So you see a connection here. When the ungodly are destroyed, it's the same day that the new heavens and the new earth will come because the old heavens will be burned up. But if there's any question on that, let's go down to verse 10. So, John, can you read verse 10 down to 13? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Okay, so we didn't look at the entire, we didn't read uh, verse 1 through verse 13, and I exhort you to do that, but you're going to find that you never find a millennial kingdom anywhere. He never flips over to, and this is going to happen after the millennial kingdom. It's a continuous argument. His argument is people are claiming that Christ is never going to return, and he goes and says that's not true, that, you know, look at the flood, and then he argues that a day with the, you know, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. God is not slow concerning his promise, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So it's a two-fold argument. It's not true that everything has happened the same way. It's, it's, the flood has uh, changed reality. The other argument is God is really patient, and he has a plan. And the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he wants to save all of the elect, is how I understand the text. And then verse 10 then tells you the certainty of him coming back. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. Now, isn't there a movie called Thief in the Night? Is there a movie called Thief in the Night? I haven't watched that movie. But who's the thief in the night? Anybody that watched that movie? Who's the thief that comes at night? I need your help. I haven't watched the movie. I don't think we have either, Nobody's watched the movie? Christ is the thief in the night. That's the point. The point is we, we should recognize this, this language of thief in the night. Jesus says that, right? He's going to come as a thief in the night. Hence the movie we call Thief in the Night. So the point is, we know the thief in the night language alludes to Jesus. But the day will come like a thief in the night. And again, the, the, the point of the thief in the night is, Jesus says that a thief comes when you're sleeping and we don't expect him. Because if you were all your lights on, he sees you in there walking around with your shotgun, he's not going to come in. Right? He waits until you're sleeping, that's when he comes to get you. And Jesus says the same thing. He's a thief in the night. When though people do not expect him, that's when he'll come. So the day that will come as a thief in the night refers to the second coming. The whole context is about the second coming. It's not about a thousand years later at the end of the millennium. It's about the second coming. And this is the day which the earth will pass away, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and both the earth and the works that are on it will be burned up. I don't get caught on a tangent here, but you do realize that the earth is going to be burned up. Everybody see that? It's going to be burned up. This earth is not staying here. If you think your iPhone is going to last through those fires, it's not going to happen. If you think your house is going to last through the fires, it's not going to happen. Burned up means burned up. It's going to be destroyed. As the waters destroy the earth, your house was not going to be there during the flood. It's going to be smashed. And so the earth will be burned up. But after this dissolving of the earth and the coming of the day of the Lord, when the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So out of the ash heap of the earth will come a new earth. This kind of reminds me of resurrection, doesn't it remind you? When your body decays and turns into ash, what happens? Out of those ashes come a new glorified body. Out of the ashes of this earth will come a new glorified earth where righteousness dwells. Now, I want you to think about this. If the earth is burned up, if it's completely engulfed in flames, just like the flood engulfed the earth with water, so the earth is now engulfed in flames, do you think your wicked neighbor will survive? What do you think? you think he's going to be like swimming around in the flames somehow, making it to the other side? No, of course not. He's going to be burned up. By the way, this explains why there's a rapture. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about God knows how to save the righteous and take them out of judgment and reserve the wicked for judgment. And he gives various pictures. He gives the flood when God put Noah in the ark and then flooded the earth to protect Noah. Or when God took Lot and took him out of the city and burned down the city. Well, the righteous are raptured, so they're not on the earth, right? And they have glorified bodies, so they can't be burned up. The wicked are not getting glorified bodies. They are having regular bodies when the earth is engulfed in flames and they're going to burn up. The point is they're going to die. This is just like we said last time. There's not going to be any wicked people that are surviving this. But the main point is at the second coming of Christ comes the destruction of the ungodly, that's their death, and comes the revealing of the new heavens and the new earth. But again, remember, under the premillennial scheme, the new heavens and the new earth happen a thousand years later. But there's no sight of that. In fact, this seems to absolutely contradict that notion, which gives the implication that maybe our understanding of Revelation chapter 20 is wrong. Does everybody see that? By the way, does anybody know where this phrase, new heaven, new earth, comes from? This was not originally penned. Well, let me just ask you this. Does anybody know where this phrase, new heaven, new earth, is found anywhere else in the Bible? 
Stephanie? Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66, right? And that's the Old Testament background, Isaiah 65 and 66, which we didn't get to, but that's one of the premillennialist proof texts is Isaiah 65. But Peter says Isaiah 65 is fulfilled, right, at the second coming of Christ not a thousand years later. Um, and then we also see it in Revelation chapter 21. Just go ahead and flip to Revelation 21 and just look at that, just so you see, so you don't just believe me. We look at Revelation chapter 21. I'll flip there too. Somebody gets there before me. Just go ahead and read it out. Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Right there. This happens after the thousand years. It's clear after the thousand years, right? Revelation, the thousand years end in verse 7 of chapter 20. We're in chapter 21. There's no recapitulation here. This is a continuous story, and it happens afterwards. So this suggests that the millennial kingdom is not happening after the second coming, but the millennial kingdom is the first coming, and after the millennial, com- millennial kingdom, the second coming happens, and that's why the great white throne judgment happens at that time, and that's why the new heavens and the new earth happen at that time. Based on all the other passages we've seen, we would expect that very thing. So we are rapidly running out of time. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then we're going to look at Daniel 12. And then I will try to exegete Revelation chapter 20 from an all-millennialist perspective. So oh, this is kind of ambitious, so we'll see what we can do. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll just read it myself for the sake of time. Looking at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Let me stop here. Here's a point. He's arguing that there is a resurrection. Just as through Adam, everyone dies, so in Christ, everyone will be made alive. But he says, look, there's an order here. The first was Christ. Christ was the first one who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, right? There's going to be another resurrection that's going to happen at his coming. Now, I've said this before many times. What text tells us about that resurrection? At his coming for the righteous. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the rapture. Everybody remember that text, right? That's what he's talking about. At the rapture, you are going to have those who belong to Christ. They are going to receive that resurrection. Now look at uh, verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, what is the plain meaning of then comes the end? Anybody? Neil? It's over. over, Right? If I say, here's the movie, then comes the end. That's it. There's nothing else. Right? That's the plain meaning of that. At after Christ comes back, then comes the end, and then it describes that end. What's he going to do? He's going to, put, he's going to destroy every rule and authority. And then in verse 26, he says, or verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So after Christ is finished subjecting all of his enemies, the last enemy is death, then Christ will subject himself to the Father, and then God will be all in all. Right? That will be called the kingdom of the Father, which sounds like something we saw elsewhere about them reigning in the kingdom of their Father. So the kingdom of Christ is now, and one day there'll be the kingdom of our Father. Now, there might be some complexities of what all that means, but hey, it says what it says. Christ is subjecting himself to the Father in that day, and God will be all in all. And we don't have time to look at this, but one of the proof texts uh, for the premillennialist interpretation is Zechariah 14, which we saw last time. That phrase, that God will be, ma- be made all in all, alludes back to Zechariah 14, which supposedly is a premillennialist text. But the New Testament interprets that as going to happen at the eternal state. Now, what we really want to look at is the statement that at Christ's second coming, he's going to destroy his last enemy, which is 
What's his last enemy? Death. Okay. Now, that's an important key. Now, skip down to verse 50. That Christ is, when, when he's going to subject himself under the Father, is after he destroys his last enemy, which is death. So, here's what we can do. If we can find out when death is destroyed, then we might be able to figure out when this happens. Does everybody see that? If we can figure out when the last enemy is destroyed, then we can figure out when Christ subjects himself to the Father and the eternal state happens. So, let's see if we have any clues. Verse 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? A lot here, but notice this. When is death defeated? Right there in verse 54. It says right here. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, if, if death is being taunted like that, does that mean death is defeated? Yes. This is, the, this is the fulfillment of death being defeated. When does that happen? When the perishable puts on imperishability and when the mortal puts on immortality. When does that happen? The second coming of Christ. You see how this all fits together? The death of death, the defeat of death, happens at the second coming of Christ. But if his last enemy is defeated when he comes back, then how... Can we argue that this refers to things happen, happening after the millennium? It seems that this happens at the second coming of Christ when death is defeated. That's when his last enemy, and that's when Christ subjects himself uh, to the Father, and God will be all in all. There's another interesting thing here. Look at verse 50. It's very important to see this. Verse 50 says this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There's a connection here. Why do we receive glorified bodies then on that day and not today? Or why don't we just die and receive glorified bodies? Right? Why don't we just die and receive glorified bodies and just go to heaven? Because there's a connection between us receiving imperishable bodies and us inheriting an imperishable kingdom. We receive the imperishable bodies to receive an imperishable kingdom. We saw that same thing in Romans chapter 8. But remember, according to premillennialism, you receive an imperishable body to receive a perishable kingdom that will be destroyed in a thousand years. You see the contradiction? You see the tension? You see the problem? I receive an imperishable body, receive an imperishable kingdom. Also, the statement, flesh and blood, does not inherit the kingdom of God, seems to run problems with the normal premillennialist scheme where you have mortal people inheriting the kingdom of God. Because there are mortal saints there. But it says flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. And it defines that by that mortal people will not inherit that kingdom. So there's a whole lot of problems here. And it seems that it's very, the, the easiest and plainest understanding here is that when Christ comes, then the end will come, when he's destroyed his last enemy, his last enemy is death, that's the resurrection of his people, then he'll be subjected to the Father, then we will receive immortal bodies, receiving an immortal kingdom. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 seems to be teaching, which all preclude the premillennialist scheme, completely. All right, two more texts, Daniel chapter 12, and we'll actually try to exegete Revelation 20 in two minutes. We'll see how that works. All right, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, I'll just skip down to verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, but some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it describes the resurrection, and it seems to describe the righteous being resurrected at the same time as the wicked. And clearly this refers to an actual physical resurrection and refers to eternal destinies because it describes the righteous as receiving everlasting life, but the wicked receiving shame and everlasting contempt. But then, look to verse 5. And you can thank Neil for this one, because this one I did not know myself, but he pointed it out to me. I think it's really good. Verse 5, so he just saw the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked in verse 2. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood on this bank of the stream and one on the other bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? So he says, How long? These wonders. These wonders 
certainly seem to include the resurrection. How long will it be? Verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for times, times, and half a time. And then when the shattering of the people of the holy people comes to an end, then all of these things will be finished. So here's what he's saying. All of these wonders will be finished after times, time, and half a time. After Daniel's 70th week is over. That's what he's saying. I can show you elsewhere what that 70th week is. It's the Great Tribulation period, but I don't have time for that. The point is that the end of Daniel's 70th week, which is certainly not the end of the Millennial Kingdom, is when these wonders will be fulfilled. These wonders include the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Will all be fulfilled after the Great Tribulation, after the shattering of God's people comes to an end. This fits perfectly with the all-millennial scheme. There's going to be a great tribulation. Christ is going to come back, destroy the Antichrist, rescue his people. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to destroy the earth. This is going to be the final judgment. Then the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God forever and ever, and the wicked will receive the lake of fire forever and ever. It fits perfectly. But it doesn't make a lot of sense of the premillennial scheme. Anybody have any questions on Daniel 12? Okay, we have one more text, the big one, Revelation chapter 20. So let's put all this together. So how do we make sense of Revelation chapter 20? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that in the book of Revelation, there's something called recapitulation. In fact, this happens all the time in the prophets. You have a story, and then it'll go back and recapitulate. And you have a story, and it'll go back and recapitulate. Some of you like movies. Some of the weirder movies have the same element, right? You begin the movie, and the person's running, ha, 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 ha. And it goes back. What's happening? Right? It told you this drama scene, and then the rest of the movie is getting you up to that point. And then all of a sudden you realize he's being chased because he stole X, Y, and Z. Right? Everybody's seen that element in those movies. That's what the prophets do all the time. They recapitulate. They go back in time. In the book of Revelation, there is recapitulation. In fact, you'll notice that almost always the recapitulation happens after the second coming. You can see this at the seals. You have the sixth seal. You read the sixth seal. The second coming of Christ happens. You go into chapter 7. And all of a sudden, there's people alive. There's trees still there, and they're being sealed. And you're like, what's going on? And this happens over and over. Revelation chapter 14, there's the, the wicked. They're thrown into the great wine press of God and smashed right after the rapture. And you think, that's it. And then, boom, you continue on the story. It recapitulates. You see this often. Look at Revelation, see the second coming, and you'll notice there's often a recapitulation. And the all-millennialists say that's exactly what happens in Revelation 19 and 20. Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ. Revelation 20 shows a recapitulation. Now, by the way, everybody has to believe that at some level. Why? Because at the second coming of Christ, that is when people receive their resurrection, right? The, the righteous. But notice in Revelation chapter 20, after Revelation 19, that describes the resurrection. You have a problem. If you think Revelation 19 and 20 follow each other absolutely sequentially, you have a problem because we're supposed to receive our glorified bodies at the second coming of Christ when he comes to destroy the wicked and not five minutes later. Everybody see that? So it shows you that in Revelation chapter 20, there is some level of recapitulation. So the argument is this, that Revelation 19 describes the second coming. Revelation 20 goes all the way back to the first coming of Christ and then describes that same, those same events between the first and second coming, but now it zones in on the devil and shows you his story and his defeat. So Revelation 19 didn't mention the devil. It left them out. Revelation 20 gives you the full story of the devil from beginning to end and shows you his defeat. Now, what's interesting about uh, Revelation 20, and let me show you some other evidence of recapitulation. Notice at the end of Revelation chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, the eternal state. Has anyone ever wondered under premillennialism, why is that? Everyone else supposedly is in Hades, but the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire for a thousand years. Everyone else is in Hades, but the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire. That's weird. We would expect everyone to be in the same place. Then at the end of Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, you have the devil thrown into that same lake of fire. What I'm arguing is the reason that you have the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire in the end of Revelation 19 is to indicate to you that this is the end of history. And that same thing is picked up and to show you that the same thing is happening in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. All right, I have so much to say, but not enough time. Let me just tell you this. Here, here's another uh, simple argument, and then I'll try to explain this uh, from an all-millennialist perspective. One thing that's really interesting is, and this really was one of the things that moved me in an all-millennialist perspective. If I wanted to teach someone basic Christian 
eschatology. What is going to happen in the future? You know what I would do? I would take you to the book of Revelation chapter 20, and I would say, this is basic eschatology. Why? Because there's two things that happen, two phases of church history described in Revelation 20. There's a thousand years, which is a long time, and there's a short little period of great tribulation. Anybody see that? There's a thousand years of Christ's people reigning, and then there's a short little period where all havoc breaks loose. That's exactly what I think is going to happen in church history. Most of church history, the first three and a half years of Daniel, is us being invincible, us not being able to be destroyed, the, the gospel going out, right? And at the very end, the Antichrist is going to come, and there's going to be a shattering of his people, which is described as the uh, Satan being released from a th- after the thousand years and grabbing the nations and surrounding the holy city. So uh, I think that the whole... Uh, Eschatology can be summarized in Revelation 20. But let me quickly summarize it. So the devil's binding. What is the devil's binding? Some premillennials say this cannot be currently today because the devil is clearly not bound. He goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, this sounds, sounds good. The problem is that Jesus says that the strong man has been bound at the, at the first coming. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I'm plundering the strong man because he's currently bound. So the Bible itself, whether you're all millennials or not, describes Satan currently, right now, bound. In John chapter 12, it says that the, the ruler of this age has been cast out. So the, the language of the devil being cast out of the earth is not an all millennialist only interpretation. The Bible itself describes Satan as being defeated, being cast out of the earth, and being bound. So I don't think that causes us any trouble. The... the, the um, Tribulation period, this surrounding of the city of God, that shouldn't cause us any problems either because that sounds like the Great Tribulation. Okay? The, the, the part that causes some major problems is this first resurrection. And we have to admit that that is a challenge for the all-millennialist perspective. There's three main, there's actually two, and I have my own. My own's probably wrong, but I'll just tell you my own. Uh, the two main interpretations is one just refers to regeneration. The first resurrection is regeneration. Okay? You see that in John chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 2, that we receive regeneration now. That's the, uh, a classic understanding. Most have rejected that today. The second understanding is that the resurrection refers to dying and going with Christ and reigning with Christ in heaven. And that's probably the most common all-millennialist perspective. My perspective is that the, uh, the first resurrection refers to Old Testament saints being released out of Hades and going and reigning with Christ, which is, of course, also true for all of us after we die. That's what I think that the first resurrection refers to. The reason I think that is because they're already described as dead in the beginning of the thousand years. And you weren't even around to be, you weren't around at that time at all. The only people that were dead at the beginning of the thousand years at the first coming of Christ were dead saints. I also would argue that based on a parallel passage in Revelation chapter 13 where it describes Satan being cast down and heaven rejoicing. I think that this is what happened. That at the second coming of Christ, at the first coming of Christ, when he rose from the dead, he took a host of captives with him. You can see the same concept in Hebrews chapter 12 when it says that Old Testament saints did not receive the promise, but we have received something better so that they will receive the promise when we did. But I don't really have time to get into that. Uh, but bottom line is this resurrection could be referring to regeneration. It could be referring to going and dying with heaven. I think it actually refers to Old Testament saints leaving Hades and going to reign with heaven, which is also true of us. We never go to Hades, though. We go straight with Christ and reign with him in heaven after we die. So um, we've run out of time. Any? That was a lot. Here's kind of what I, w- I want to open up the questions and comments, but here's what I want you to see. There are good reasons that people have questioned premillennialism. There are good reasons why people have accepted premillennialism. There are a good case to be made on both. You have to be a Berean. You have to study out all the Bible and again, this is the reason that we don't divide on this issue, because it is very challenging. You have to synthesize tons of different texts. If you read a lot of Old Testament texts, you might feel very premillennial. If you read a lot of New Testament texts, you might feel very all-millennial. It's a, it's a backwards and forward thing. We need to have charity with this doctrine. So any final questions, comments, concerns?
our warning to unbelievers is they don't get a second chance. They don't get to see that, hey, those guys were right, and I better repent. That doesn't happen. It's like a thief in the night. You, you believe now. You accept Christ now because you don't get a second chance. And I say sort of most dangerous for the saints, right, in that they, we, there isn't this time that we're going to get where we can say, you know, the remaining saints or, or people who come to Christ after the, after the rapture are not going to be able to say, see, see again, right there, right there, right, right. It's, you know, you have to believe, you have to believe. You don't get that. We have everything we need right now to call people to Christ. And yeah. we don't have a second chance. Right? And that's why I think it's, it is a safer position. Yeah, we certainly don't have a second chance. When Christ comes back, that's it. Um, if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to be burned up. You're going to be resurrected and then cast in the lake of fire. If you do believe in Christ, you're going to be raptured up. You get to go with our body and dwell with him. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, at least that's what um, I think the Bible teaches from these various passages. Any One more comment, question, concern? Before we get out of here. Somebody's going to give it to me. We're just going to hold it. Come on. What do you think, Steph? I'm going to get a question. Somebody's going to say something. Apparently not. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this study. Lord, we thank you that we can study the Scriptures. Lord, we know that we went very fast and uh, just briefly looked at these Scriptures. But Lord, I pray that your people would search in these things and consider these things. And Lord, I pray that we would be humble. We would see that a good case can be made for all millennialism. A good case can be made for premillennialism. And eschatology is notoriously difficult for these very reasons. Let us be humble people and keep searching and keep seeking to understand all of your word together and properly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.